There was a podcast called the Sequel Cast. They talked about movies. And they talked about something else called boobies. The Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. www.sequelcast.com. Ready to get started recording proper? Yeah, yeah. Okay, should I also preface this with the uh, that I haven't yet seen the uh, movie? I'll admit oh, I haven't uh, seen it either because my Netflix just came in today, but that's okay. Well, neither of you watched it. Apparently not, but that's all right. We'll get along. We'll be a unique episode. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to the sequel cast, a movie where we review movie franchises one movie at a time. This time around, we're in the middle of the uh, Reanimator series with the second movie in the franchise, Bride of Reanimator, which was directed by Brian Yuzna in uh, 1991. I'm your host, Uncle Milkshake, and with me is Thrasher. Howdy. And... Jersey Jason. Jersey Jason. And uh, be sure to visit the website at www.sequelcast.com, or you can send us an email at sequelcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on iTunes, just search for SequelCast. Now that that initial plugging is done with, we're going to start talking about Bride of Reanimator, and this episode of the SequelCast is going to be a landmark episode, because two out of the three hosts have not seen the movie, at least not recently. <laughs> I've never seen it. Have you seen this before, Jason? I've seen bits and pieces. <laughs> Which is funny, this movie, in a way, is about bits and pieces. Mm. Yeah. But it's also a love story. But, but through process of elimination, that means that I am the only person at this roundtable who has seen this movie from beginning to end at any point recently. And by recently, I mean as recently as this morning. Oh, nice. Well, this will be, uh, it'll be fresh in your memory then, which will be good. Cause... Oh, yes. I even took notes because I was expecting a wonderful point-by-point conversation. Okay, well, um, this will be... <laughs> This will be special, you know? Life can be unpredictable, or Netflix can be unpredictable in my case. But, why don't we uh, get started? So does this pick up... So let's refresh the memory of the audience. What happened at the very end of Reanimator? Because it was a pretty action-packed ending. Okay, the end of Reanimator, which is of course based on H.P. Lovecraft's Herbert West Reanimator stories, uh, there is a big, there's a big showdown uh, the uh, the severed head of Doctor Hill is controlling a bunch of zombies. There's a the zombie riot in the hospital. Uh, Herbert West, the reanimator, injects his reagent into Doctor Hill's body to give it an overdose. Uh, his assistant uh, Kane is able to flee the scene with his girlfriend. Uh, and the last we see of Herbert West in that film is Doctor Hill's corpse, like opening up and. Uh, intestinal tentacle grabbing West and sucking it into his body to what at the time we thought was his death. Uh, Kane, of course, escapes with his girlfriend. His girlfriend, however, dies. He isn't able. Uh, he isn't able to save her, and then realizes at the last minute he has a vial of the reagent, the solution which resurrects the dead after a fashion. And the last shot we see is the green goo going into her body, and then we hear a woman scream. Uh, and that's where the first film ends. Well, this film. Uh, if you haven't read uh, the Reanimator stories, the beginning of this film comes out of nowhere. Uh, this film begins with Herbert West 
apparently still alive. No explanation given for how he survived being sucked into the torso and strangled by the intestinal tentacles. He and Dr. Kane are in South America acting as uh, medics for some sort of uh, revolution, and it's a few months after the events of the first film. No mention is made about what happened to uh, Kane's girlfriend. Uh, all we know is that uh, West and Kane are working as medics, and of course, if a patient doesn't pull through, they use the patient for their experimentation. So it's a pretty clever cover-up, then. Yes, and actually, there, there are other connections, too, because West kind of makes a big deal about these iguanas, which we later find out is the Cusco iguana, which one of you ought to look that up on Wikipedia for some fun facts. Uh, and he's you know, believing that there's some you know, fluid, in something in the, uh, the iguana's biology that's a key to the reanimator research, which is another link to the story. Uh, in the original story, there are references to what actually goes into the reagent. And at one point, it, I believe introduced during the World War I segment of the story, it is mentioned that uh, that tissue or, uh, from from some rare breed of lizard is part of the reagent. The primitive cells help invigorate the tissue of, of the human dead. What kind of iguana was it? Uh, they refer to it as the Cusco iguana, as in the, the South American ancient city. Hmm. But uh, we don't get to see too much of the revolution, and I was tempted, while watching it, all I could think of were jokes from M.A.S.H., if you could have Jeffrey Combs, this isn't a war. This is a murder. Or, or, you know. So you mentioned they, they bring Herbert West back without explaining what happened to him. Yeah, no, no explanation. It's never explained how Herbert West survived into the movie. It's never explained what happened to Kane's girlfriend uh, at the end of the movie. They're just suddenly in South America and it's several months later. I mean, I guess we could presume that maybe they fled the country to, to flee the law, because I, well, I can assume there is, there, there is mention of the Miskatonic Massacre. Well, we, well, yeah, but we'll get into that. Um, but anyway, we, we don't get to spend too much time in South America, because one of the factions uh, in the Civil War starts to, you know, starts shooting people up, starts to, uh, starts to move into their territory, and then out of nowhere... Uh, the character of Francesca Denali shows up. She barges into the tent. She's got a pistol. Her, her fatigue's on. And, and, uh, and she says, we've got to get out of here. Uh, she, she had what I thought was the worst South American accent ever. Wasn't I surprised to find out that her character is apparently Italian? No yeah. explanation whatsoever is given for why an Italian is fighting in a South American uh, uh, civil war and so, West and Kane head back to where the money is. They head back to Miskatonic, uh, or they head, not, they head back to, to, they head back to Arkham, Massachusetts. Uh, and apparently she goes with them. But like she just, I don't, I say go with them. She just happens to be in Arkham when they get there. Uh, again, no <laughs> explanation. Well, she flew. We, we hope she did. Uh, so anyway, from, from there, uh, West and Kane get jobs as doctors uh, in the Miskatonic Hospital. Again, I guess, I guess they graduated and got their degrees after the first film. Part I would not put it past West to forge documents, especially when he already thinks he is the top shit. True, true. So anyway, once again, Kane and, uh, Kane and West are living in a house together. They're working at the hospital. They're stealing body parts. Uh, They're for their... prison buddies. For their experimentations, and uh, we get into some reanimator goodness. Uh, 
however, some some baggage or some some wreckage from the first film does come back to haunt them. Now, why is Kane still working with uh, Herbert West? I, you know, does he I, feel like, well, I'm shit. All this stuff happened. Guess I'm stuck with him, helping West with. His well, he also sees the genius of the work. I mean, I for one am amazed by Herbert West's um, true discovery, even though it is quite horrifying and the results are terrible. It is still a fascinating science that could be used if it were perfected to save lives. Yeah, all I can really say is that Kane, Kane, no, he, Kane, as, as we see in the first film, when he doesn't want to pronounce that first patient that you see him interacting with dead, you know, he really is driven to save lives. It's hard for him to accept when a person dies when and he when he thinks it can be prevented. And I, I think an extension of that allows him to be infected by West's own obsession, which is why he keeps putting up with this kind of stuff and helping West with his research. So they're still trying to perfect the reagent. Oh, God, their house. They're, they're living in an, an, a former... The house they're living in is cemetery adjacent. Like in the book. <laughs> yeah, used like to be a funeral home. Or used to be a mortician's, then became a caretaker, then became the house for the caretaker for the cemetery, and now they just live there. I don't know where the caretaker's living, and their basement shares a wall with a crypt, and and I guess it's it when it show when when all this stuff comes in, it really just seems far fetched. Like it's like it's it's not horrible enough the experiments these people are doing. Let's give them the spookiest house we can find. It's very easy comics. <laughs> Oh, and West, of course, knocks down or knocks a hole into the adjoining wall so he can get in and out of the crypt. <laughs> oh, which actually leads to one of my favorite lines. Because uh, what he does is he, is, is he there, there's some of the bricks in that adjoining wall. Adjoining wall can be removed, and of course he'll he'll take the bricks out, throw experimental waste into the crypt, then brick it up again. Towards the end of the movie, there's a scene where he and Kane are in the basement, and like something is scrap is, is something is like making the bricks rattle. <laughs> And is like what's in and and Kane, you know, West is like what's th- 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 what's that? And then Kane just kind of like casually waves to the the bricks and the walls. And says, oh, it must be the rats in the walls. Uh... Which, is, yeah, which is a great H.P. Lovecraft in joke. I, I will say this: this film does have a real sense of humor to the point where it all where it doesn't take certain things seriously that probably should be taken seriously. The first reanimator I feel had an exceptional balance between the horror and the humor making it a real roller coaster ride. This is much more like the later Evil Dead films where everything seems to turn into a joke and a lot of as a result a lot of opportunities for horror are squandered in favor of humor. Well, can we actually talk a little bit about um Hill because I think a lot of the humor, the horrible humor, comes from Hill's head still being alive. Hill yeah, as it turns out. In the first movie. Yeah, and of it, course, it, that's also why he won the race, because he was ahead. Oh, how to clout that big nut of yours, Jason. Uh, but, but yeah, okay, in, in the Miskatonic, now this is, they're working in the Miskatonic Hospital. Now they're not associated with the university. They're at the Miskatonic Hospital, uh, and there's a there's a, a doctor there, uh, a doctor Doctor Graves, played by Mel Stewart. Uh, Who's greatness! I actually like him a lot. <laughs> in in his own way, yeah. Well, in the closet to his office, in the closet 
to his office, not a fridge, not a medical storage thing, the damn closet, are all the remaining body parts from what is referred to as the Miskatonic Massacre, which is, of course, the, the climax of the first movie when Hill released the reanimated Horde. And, you know, he's talking about... And, and, oh, and, and like, the, the closet is covered in police tape. So what is the... It's the if it's police evidence, shouldn't the police have it? It's not like the closet's the crime scene. Is stuff in the closet pretty decomposed or is it in good shape? No, it's actually in perfect shape. That's actually a key point because the because the Doctor Graves is baffled that that the tissue has suffered everything. All the body parts in there have suffered no decomposition. Something mm. that he doesn't understand is keeping them perfectly preserved, which is of course the traces of the reagent. Mm. Well, there's a detective uh, who shows up, uh, Lieutenant uh, Police Detective Lieutenant Leslie Chapman, played by Leslie. Claude Jones. Because you don't want James Earl Jones, you want Claude Earl Jones. Uh, well, he shows up in Dr. Graves' office and and uh, and you know and says, "Well, you're the man in charge of keeping track of the evidence for or the remains of that massacre. We found this in a traveling sideshow," and hands Dr. Graves Dr. Hill's head, still again perfectly preserved, and it's a little bit rubbery, but it's still a pretty decent uh, head model. And if the cameras didn't hold on it so often, it probably would look very well. Well, Dr. Of course. In with the body parts is a vial of the reagent. One night, uh, when when Graves puts two and two together and realizes that the reagent is what's keeping the, the tissues preserved, he clamps Dr. Hill's head to a table and injects it with reagent, and, and now Dr. Hill is back for revenge. Only Dr. Hill seems to have forgotten he can hypnotize anyone. <laughs> it's like, a big hole. <laughs> that was such a major part of the climax of the first film. Is how he could control. Yeah, like he he seems to have forgotten he can hypnotize people. He he like he begs like he he, he just does spends all he does is berate, insult, and threaten Doctor Graves to get him to help him. <laughs> Never once uses his mind control powers. Now, which is what's really fucked up because one of the creepier things is in the in the uh, sanitarium are three of the reanimated corpses from the first film. You know, they're still walking around, but they're completely incoherent. So everyone assumes they're just very ment- they're just very mentally damaged, so they're kept well, in the Well, he's asylum. also given them lobotomies, so they show the scars of lobotomies. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so later on, like after... And this is another thing, like, it's hard to tell the passage of time because of the cuts in this movie, but it looks to me like Dr. Hill's head has been in Graves' office for possibly up to a week, just threatening <laughs> And and when the time comes, uh, he uh, he says, "Well, if you won't help me, I'll find others who can." And suddenly takes telepathic control of the three the three reanimated corpses in the psych ward, uh, and the the and another character who has become uh, reanimated at that point over distance, like so now he's telepathic. But he can only work his up on reanimated things, which he can only assume is out there. Now, Will, in the original um, Herbert West story by Lovecraft, what is the reasoning? Do they do they have a reasoning behind the the beheaded doctor being able to bring all those corpses back for revenge? Is it just possibly a charisma, or maybe reasoning with them, saying, 
well, this is the guy who did it. This is the guy. This is the reason that you're alive and why you're in a sanitarium. Because he breaks the guy out of a sanitarium, kind of in yeah, the I, same way that this happens, except it's done long distance, like a call. Yeah, I I'll admit I have not read the story in a long time. I always just kind of assumed just the dead had an affinity for the dead, and as the most intelligent of the reanimated creatures, he could just, just simply exert his will over over the rest. Because you talk about the level of will that the person has, and I think that actually might be in it as well, because he was a military doctor of high rank. Well, in, in the story, yes. He was just as brilliant as Herbert Webb. You know, as long as we're talking about Dr. Hill, maybe we should skip ahead to the most uh, ridiculous thing. Oh, what, bat wings? Yeah, yeah. Uh, when Dr. Graves is experimenting with the reagent, he has a bat you know, pinned down to a, to a tray, and he uses it to reanimate the bat. And first and foremost, wouldn't you use a mouse? It's harder to catch bats than it is <laughs> to, to, get, to get mice. You could just, or a dead cat from the street. It's like, a, or, or did he just find a bat that had died of natural causes outside his house that morning? It hit the window of Bruce Wayne's mansion. <laughs> Corpses Cracked were a superstitious, cat. cowardly lot. Yeah, but no, that's actually a really good point. And then I'd also like to say that for mobility, he he's, at, he's I guess, controlled or, or forced into putting the bat wings onto, uh, onto Hill. And yeah, yeah. they have to be a certain size for them to actually be able to work. Well, 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 I think the, the physics in this film are highly dubious. Okay, um, I'm just... Uh, raising the dead, that's fine. But putting bat wings on a head and having it fly, I yeah. don't know. But you yeah. have, what else can you do to make just a head be threatening as a villain? Well, it, can't, the, you can't it worked when he had his own body, much. but yeah, it, it kind of is the idea that a head in control of an army of undead, that's kind of cool, but a freaking head that flies... <laughs> With floppy, with floppy bat wings stitched to its head. <laughs> and then it gets caught in Meg's hair. <laughs> if only. Yeah. But, but I guess that's the thing, like, all I can, like, it's just so silly, because it's like he has these flapping ears whenever you see him flying. <laughs> it's like, it's too, I, I want to be frightened of it, but it just comes across as silly. And it reminds me of in uh, is it Marvel like the really comics. cheesy stop motion style effects? No, it's kind of a pop. It's kind of no. It's actually the actor's head, and they have the wings mounted to the side, but it's all blue screen, so it's flying around. <laughs> but it's actually not that bad for the time, I guess. Well, this is the one scene I have seen. Well, this is the thing about it is that it reminds me of Marvel Comics Tomb of Dracula when at one point Dracula became a flying severed head. Hmm. <laughs> But actually, speaking of when it came out, that's the interesting thing. Um, the credits, the credits of the film uh, have it listed as 89. Internet Movie Database lists it as coming out in uh, 1990. Uh, and uh, Wikipedia cites it as coming out in 1991. Hmm. And, and I'm kind of wondering if this is one of those films where they're sort of where it has a, a bizarre release schedule, possibly due to legal restrictions. That could be yeah, the case. But it could have been one of those. Uh, it could have been one of those that played, like the cult film festivals for a little bit, and maybe took a long time to find a, a proper video. No, release. but I bet it was. I bet it was an actual release. 
It's just very limited, maybe. I can see that. Well, what gets me weird is like, is that it must have been a slow year for science fiction, horror, and fantasy that year, because Bride of Reanimator was nominated, uh, was was nominated from from several awards. It was nominated for the Saturn for best horror film. Combs actually was nominated for uh, best support the Saturn for best supporting actor, which I totally believe he deserved. I mean, he's still yeah, marvelous in this, but. I I gotta say I'm not thrilled with this film. It relies on having the same villain from the first film. Do you think that is a is a weakness? Well, we no, have... he's barely the villain. It's a continuation of a story. Well, he's barely the villain. He doesn't do anything. Like he doesn't do anything to threaten West and and Kane until the last five to five ten minutes of the movie. Hmm. He's really not an attack, and they and they're completely ignorant of of his continued survival up until that point. It it really just you know in their lives it comes out of nowhere. I mean the really mounting thing is is what drives everything forward is is Kane West and the Bride, which you know I can't believe we've talked about this for so long without actually talking about the Bride of Reanimator. <laughs> like I said, it's a love story. Yeah, well. West, well, early on in the film, West reveals that, you know, they know they can reanimate uh, it parts. They know they can reanimate whole parts. And uh, uh, West also goes off about this theory that consciousness resides in every part of the body, not just the brain, which I guess is extrapolated from the, the center of the will and the brain discussions from the first film. So the short of it is that West using some fingers, an eyeball, and some nerve endings makes an eyeball spider. It's the stop-motion, like, eyeball mounted on grubby fingers that skitters around the lab. It does everything except make eeky-peeky noises, which I'm very glad it doesn't. And from there, he's like, well, well, Kane, let's, let's get the best parts and rebuild someone. We'll have the best parts. And, of course, where does he want to start? Well, when West finds that evidence room that Dr. Graves has, he finds the heart of Kane's girlfriend from the first film. That will be the centerpiece of their creation, the heart of the woman that Kane loved and still isn't quite over. Yet do they never quite explain what happened to the rest of the fur parts? Not at all. Her heart is just lying there in a bag. Well, oh. remember, we, we've saw, we saw what happened to Hans Gruber. No. Yeah, Hans Gruber. No, what's the doctor from Switzerland? Yeah, that was Hans Gruber. He, yeah. he exploded. Why does that sound... I think that's also the name but of the But that doesn't tell villain. us what happened. That doesn't tell us what happened to the girlfriend. But but we've seen it, we've seen a person explode. Yeah, but that's the only one. The only other person who exploded was Dr. Hill's body when he had the overdose. Exactly. But what if Kane had screwed up? and put too much into her. We hear her yelling at the end of the movie. Maybe she was yelling because she was in so much pain, and then went... Well, you know, you bring a good point. That is possible. I doff Maybe my just a heart on the table, beating. And then, of course, <laughs> Kane would be screaming, and that's a good reason for him to run away to uh, Puerto Rico. South America. South America. You were correct. Hans Gruber is the name of the villain in Die Hard, as well as the name... Is it yeah. really? Yes. Wow. Take that. Exactly. Well, I what? think maybe, like a lot of people love the first one. I don't know many. Pe- I haven't met many people who've actually seen the second or third. Well, it's almost a decade between each of the sequels, right? 
What? Well, maybe not as... 85 and 91? Okay, that's not a decade, but I guess I'm thinking between 2 and 3. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'm not going to say this. Kane's romance, I found it very difficult to really... Like, Kane... Okay, here's the deal. Kane still isn't over the girlfriend who died in the first film. But he also flirts with a... What I can only presume to be a cancer patient... And he's also striking up a relationship with with Francesca. Is he as stiff as he was in the first film? Oh, uh, that's a terrible joke. Uh, he no, he. I I will say this: he's either really really stiff or really animated. I mean, there is in fact a scene towards the end where just out where like you know something goes wrong. He goes from being perfectly calm to no, <laughs> and then back to calm. <laughs> it's like it's just as unbalanced as West at that point. So, so really, Kane, and of course, once the heart of his old girlfriend goes into the making of the bride, there's like this—he's like in the—he's in the middle of this weird romantic entanglement where he's got three women in his life: the stitched together corpse, uh, heart of his ex-girlfriend, the cancer patient, and Francesca. And it's just like, what? What the hell is going on? He, he never seems to carry any relationship far enough. Uh, so he takes the heart of the ex-girlfriend and combines it with these other parts to make a, yeah, yes. a female body, the bride. Yeah, to make, to make uh, effectively, I guess, ostensibly the perfect, well, it, for Kane, the perfect woman, and for West, the perfect reanimated subject. I, I would like to point out, I took notes on, on what the bride is made out of. Excellent. Her feet are the feet of a ballet dancer who took her own life before accomplishing her because she had never accomplished her dream. The legs are the legs of a hooker. And as Wes says, these legs walked the streets. God. The womb, she has the womb and presumably the vagina, the whole vagina of a virgin. She has the heart of Cain's girlfriend the head of the cancer patient and and of course the brain that goes with it now we get into the really weird parts the arms of a waitress <laughs> <All right. laughs> the arms of a waitress like why is that significant surely surely they could have come up with something awesome like the the arms of, of a woman tennis player or like oh, I don't understand, like, the arms of a waitress. Yeah, I can't think, I'm trying to think, like, all I think of as far as arms is, like, a weightlifter, and there's not many women weightlifters. <laughs> but, oh, uh, oh, and this is the thing, her, her left hand is the hand of a lawyer, and her, her right hand, which, even when it's on the operating table, still has full red nails, <laughs> like they've been touching it up while working on it, is the is the hand of a murderess. Why? What is a murderess? A, a woman who murders. Oh. Why would you... Women can be murderers too nowadays. That's like that's like every sci-fi story where a guy gets a hand replacement or he gets some part of his body replaced by that of a man who's just been hung. And of course, yeah. sooner or later, the hand's going to take over. Well, hanged, actually. But, but yeah, because especially um, after West... Especially after West says that thing about how the consciousness is distributed throughout the body. That means this woman is, like, 
3% murderers. Yeah, and she's going to be a schizophrenic because you've got all those different personalities <laughs> vying for control. Now, are all the different words the same skin color? or? Uh, they're, well, they're all messy. They're Most of them are me- pretty messy. I see. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, they're all Caucasian parts for whatever reason. Uh, which I don't know because actually it's funny. While watching that, I was reminded of this uh, Sci-Fi Channel original movie starring uh, Will Wheaton, if I, I recall correctly, called Mr. Stitch. About It was a modern retelling of Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, and With, where... Uh, John Malkovich. Where, yeah, yeah he's a, the, the main character, Mr. Stitch, was an amalgamation. Uh, he was... He, like, his, his tissues came from all over the world. So he was actually part man, part woman. He had, like... He actually had multiple skin tones because different sections of skin were taken from different races from across the world. And and while I was watching that, I was like, you know, what would be really cool is if is if like is if she actually had different skin tones from the different people that her parts would have been taken from. I, th- I think that was kind of a missed opportunity. But again, a lot of that detail probably would have been lost just by how much blood kind of leaks off of her. So yes, those are the parts that go into making the bride. <laughs> Oh, actually, one thing I want to say that this is pretty cool. When West is explaining that the right hand is the hand of a murderess, the body's still not fully stitched together, so the tendons in her arm are exposed, and he, like, tugs on and plucks the tendons, and he actually starts manipulating it like a puppet and gets the hand to make all these delicate maneuvers before, like, clenching into this horrible fist. It's That's a cool. very good scene. Can and that I actually have- be done in real life? Pardon? Can that be done in real life? Uh, it, although I, I have to say, the, the special effects in this movie I actually really did enjoy. I can give nothing but praise to Screaming Mad George, the guy who did a good deal of the effects on this film. Was uh, he, he the did, director he did, uh, of The Guyver 2? Uh, you know, yeah, no, he's the director of the uh, first Guyver. Oh, okay. Of the first guy live action, but he also did the makeup effects for uh, Freaked, uh, the yes. uh, Bill Winters' uh, first uh, first uh, directorial effort. No, I'm sorry, was it? No, it's not Bill Winters, is it? It's uh, it's a different Winters. It was oh hell, Jonathan Alex Winters? Winter, Alex Winter, uh, Freak, Alex Winter, Thrasher. I wanted to talk about something actually. Um, yeah, because what I think is really interesting is. This movie parallels, in completely strange ways, <clears throat> the original Frankenstein, 1931 Frankenstein, and then 33 on Bride of Frankenstein? I'm not sure of the release date. Mm. But um, it really, I think it's really interesting because, yeah, you first have the idea of resurrection, of raising the dead. And then the, mo- the next movie, they have to make a female for the monster. But in this, of course, they're making the female for Kane. And you have the, the idea of, of, I guess, stitching a woman together, and then when they're resurrected, when they're, uh, uh, when they're raised from the dead, they both are kind of... They're both definitely off. I think, number one, because one is the hand of a killer. Um, <laughs> but the reaction of the... The reaction of the Bride of Frankenstein, of course, is a little bit different than the reaction of the Bride of Reanimator, because she has to compete with uh, the new Italian chick, 
uh, Francesca. Yeah, um, when she is finally brought to life, like she has not only does she have to deal with the shock of her undead state, but also has to be shocked by the fact that the guy who brought her back to life and who's in love with her is also in love with another completely living woman who has all of her original parts. Who still has the sense to, like, hate that. But now, it has Meg's heart. He plunges... Where does he plunge the needle into? Oh, actually, that's part of the key. Uh, West, for reanimating for reanimating a stitched-together body, West recommends injecting it to the heart. The heart will revive first and will very quickly spread the reagent to every cell in the body. So it's injected into the heart directly. Mm-hmm. Which, well, that I don't that's know interesting because that's where... The consciousness, I guess, would start from and would spread. So hopefully, consciousness dispersed through the body. How does he have such a big supply of this reagent still? Oh, he he makes it. You act. Oh, that's one of the cooler things in this film. He makes it in a tub. Yeah, they have a whole lab in the basement. You actually get to see West make reagent. You know, mix some chemicals together, and they of course start glowing. But but yeah, that that is. Um, something weird. If you notice, if you notice when like they go to inject the the reagent into the bride's heart, they really do see for some, for whatever reason they grope they grope her right tit with their other hand. <laughs> like better brace myself, Hulk. Is it's, that the only so- piece of nudity in the picture? No, no, there, there is a bit more. Uh, there is uh, certainly I, I wouldn't say not quite as much as the first one. Actually, not nearly as much as the first one. There is a sex scene, very brief, between uh, Kane and his new girlfriend, the Italian woman. Although mainly you just see her topless while they're basking in the afterglow. Uh, and the bride is nude, but but it's clear that, like, the, the breasts you see, it's clear that that's, a, uh, that's uh, part of the makeup. They're not actual breasts. They just don't move like the real thing. Mm-hmm. How long does she live for? Not long, maybe 10, 15 minutes before she kind of realizes how horrible things are and rips out her own heart. Oof. Which then leads to the idea that everything that was put forth in this movie to raise Meg, to bring back Meg, doesn't matter. Well, no, I mean, they don't really, they don't get anything close to Meg back. Yeah. Oh, and like the first one, this film also ends with the presumed death of uh, the presumed death of Herbert West, because of course you know as the bride's tearing her heart out, Bat Bathead Hill invades the basement with his army of the undead. The wall <laughs> is knocked down, and all of Herbert West's failed experiments. And I gotta say, that's a cool scene when you get to see all of West's failed experiments. These weird stitched together creatures with multiple heads and arms, and just connected in weird ways. Th- those scenes are amazing. There's some amazing effect work. Again, my hat goes off to Screaming Mad George. The, uh, I could not imagine that scene being done better. It is so good. And uh, West is dragged, you know, everybody really is dragged through the wall. Uh, the mausoleum collapses. Uh, uh, Hill's head gets pinned under a rock. West gets outright buried. But Kane and uh, Francesca manage to claw their way out of the earth and flee. And, of course, then the credits start. So we unfortunately we don't get you know we don't get the cool ending like seeing the green glow of the reagent go into the the girlfriend. We just see a boy and a girl really walk off into the sunrise, which I was kind of disappointed with. I was I kind of wanted another sophisticated hand out of a grave moment. 
Now, I read a really good adaptation, uh, a graphic novel adaptation of uh, Herbert West, uh, Reanimator, um, that had, it only had like about a picture every other page, but it had a really great picture of the uh, original soldier, the original doctor that uh, is commanding the zombies in the book, holding West's head. And it almost has the hint of a smile, more like a smugness, which I can't help but imagine uh, Jeffrey Combs bringing to light if we had seen his head get ripped off at some point or any of the zombies tearing him to pieces. But then, of course, we wouldn't have the next movie. Well, I mean, it, it looks for all intents and purposes like West is dead, but of course it looked for all intents and purposes like West is dead in the first one. And not to give too much away for when we do Beyond Reanimator, once again, no explanation is given for how he survived the climax of the previous film. We'll make one up for next time. Woo! So, is um, Bride of Reanimator something you have to see before you see Beyond Reanimator? You know what, I, I say no. Uh, you can skip directly from Reanimator to Beyond Reanimator, and you won't have missed a thing. Yeah. Uh, Bride of Reanimator really does seem like an anomaly. It seems like a sequel to a Reanimator movie that was never made. It, it does feel out of place with the other two. Well, do you think with this movie they were trying to, I guess, up the ante with both the gore, uh, the comedy, the, I guess, splatterness of it? I don't think I don't think they did up the ante. I mean, it it doesn't seem to be. If if anything, there might be a, there might be a bit. I mean, aside from the heart getting ripped out and a scene where a woman's rib cage is cracked open, uh, and you know the doctors are trying to massage the heart, there really isn't all that much. I would say outright gore in the film. I again, I feel I feel it's like it's like Evil Dead. The first Evil Dead, a legitimate horror movie with you know with with uh, some humorous moments that really that really work and really balance it out. But as the Evil Dead movies went on, they got sillier and sillier. And I feel the same way about this one. It doesn't try to balance the horror and the humor, and it keeps sacrificing horror for humor. And it does unbalance the film. I will say mm. it's worth mentioning the uh, original Reanimator was directed by Stuart Gordon, but um, both of the sequels, Bride of Reanimator. And Beyond Reanimator, the third one, which we'll be covering uh, next week, is uh, or directed by Brian Usna, who was a um, producer on the first film. Hmm. Yeah, he, he by the time he did Beyond Reanimator, he had really improved as a director. What else has he done? Brian Usna did both uh, horror movies in the Dentist franchise as a director, The Dentist and The Dentist Two. That's actually those are. That's an interesting movie. That's with Corbin Bernson, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Those are... I don't think we should talk about them, but they're interesting. And he also directed, looks like, Return of the Living Dead 3 and Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. Oh, no. Let's do that. Let's do that next Christmas. (laughs) It's a lot of those, huh? I, I really have to... Like, I like how competent West and Kane are in the first film, and they don't seem all that competent in this film. You know, like, Kane schedules, uh, invites his girlfriend to come over to cook a big Italian meal the same night he and West are going to reanimate some corpse parts, and of course, when she knocks on the door while they're they're messing around in the basement, he's completely surprised. 
it's like it's like three's it's like some like weird sitcom convention. Oh no, I've got to help the mad scientist, and I've got a date tonight. I've got to be in two places at once. Actually, what I will, I well, I think I know what it was. Um, he needed the carbs. <laughs> huh. Oh, and also, like the West keeps pulling out a revolver. Which he eventually hands to Kane, and then towards the end of the movie, when Kane has the revolver, West pulls out another gun. <laughs> and it's like not a revolver, it's like a modern, a very modern looking pistol. <laughs> like he had this the whole time, didn't bother to mention it. Which is weird, because like West seems like the type of person who wouldn't really use a gun. He's, he, I think he, he seems more sort of like the poison or knife guy. I could see knife. I mean, he uses a freaking shovel to decapitate Hill. And then he also... Um... One thing I love... West towards the end gives this great speech when 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 Francesca accuses him of blasphemy for trying to reanimate the dead. He gives this great speech about God and science. It's this this awesome. It's a really good speech, but it's also wonderfully crazy at the same time. Uh, as we mentioned in the first one, how the uh, the score is a is a reworking of the score from Psycho. In this film, it sounds like a cheap, sound-alike knockoff of the score from Psycho. It's really bad, but especially the during the opening credits. It's the same composer as Reanimator. But it sucks. It, okay. it is. It sound again. It sounds like a knockoff of Psycho, rather than really kind of a tribute or or, re, or rearrangement. Would you recommend Bride of Reanimator? I, I would recommend it to see the really cool special effects. I would I would recommend it if you're a real completist who who wants to see every Lovecraft movie ever made or wants to see every Stuart Gordon movie ever made or, or every Rambit movie ever made. But but really if you if you didn't already have a a, a, a love for the source material, I, I really don't know what would bring you into this movie. It just gets kind of it gets kind of so s- silly that I, I don't think people would enjoy it except maybe as kind of campy fun. Thanks for listening to the sequel cast. Visit our website at sequelcast.com. Visit us on Twitter at twitter.com slash sequelcast. Or send us an email at sequelcast at gmail.com. This is Uncle Milkshake. Jersey Jason. And Thrasher. Saying Here comes Date. the bride. Oh, go on. Here, here the <laughs> That's a good one. No, that was a good one. <laughs>